I guess it's kind of, I don't know, because like we're talking to like people yeah, all people. over the world. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, don't pressure. <laughs> don't. It's probably good we get nervous though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have fun yeah. with yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, all right. <clears throat> you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Welcome back to How Did It Come To This, where history is in the news. As always, I'm here with my esteemed colleague and friend, Siobhan Doherty. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Uh, And of course, working his magic and telling us we're wrong is our producer, James. Hi, James. (laughs) You might have been able to hear him. We don't give him a microphone. (laughs) He has to earn it. He does. That's true. Uh, So this week on How Did It Come To This... Uh, we're examining something that has interested me for a long time, but um, I only really started looking into it and researching it uh, because of our news item this week. Mm-hmm. Um, the European Union, as an idea, is interesting in and of itself. Bringing together disparate ancient city-states uh, was an idea to help combat some of the aftermath of World War II, but um, in recent days, we've been fixated not on the joining of states, but on the exit of states. And since then, the ex-captain of Team Australia has been in the news, good old tones, brandishing his wares as a trade expert to the motherland. So this week, Tony Abbott, Brexit, the European Union, how did it come how to this? How did it come to this? Gosh. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, when I, when I, first, I was talking about this today with some of our other colleagues mm-hmm. uh, and, and when, I, when I first heard that Tony Abbott was going to be appointed as a trade advisor to the UK, I was like, are you kidding? What? <laughs> a former prime minister doing like another mm-hmm. sovereign state's job? Yeah. Ah. yeah. And, yeah. and my, my history political nerd brain couldn't handle it. Exploded. It did. I exploded a little <laughs> bit. I did explode a little bit. But uh, just to, to bring you up to speed, if you haven't heard, <clears throat> uh, I am uh, reading this from the BBC. Tony Abbott, ex-Australian Prime Minister appointed UK trade advisor. The former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott has been appointed as an unpaid trade advisor to the UK government. Boris Johnson rejected claims Mr Abbott was not suitable for the role. Uh, And he uh, also said that he will advise the new board of trade, which is set up to help ministers and encourage firms to do more business internationally. And of course, uh, this is because uh, England is headed rapidly down the Brexit track uh, and they are going to be leaving the European Union and because of that they need to really set up almost 
everything again. From scratch, yeah. Um, which we're going to get into event, mm. like in this episode. But, um, yeah, so they, they needed tones yep. to come and help them. So, like, as of the 4th of September, they established the new Board of Trade. Um, so mm. when I went and had a look at it, because this is not my um, strength uh, by any means, but uh, the Board of Trade for Britain has existed before for a long time, mm. but this is like the the newest sort of version of it and it's been created in response to the needs um, created by Brexit. And mm. it's just um, senior figures from business, academia and government um, who will just be advising the government. Yeah. Um, and Big Tones is going to be one of them. Mm. Sure. Controversially. He is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, we don't want to really focus on Tony Abbott. No. His, his Brexit dealings. Don't even um, get me started. But what we do want to focus on is, well, what is the European Union? Why is, mm. why is England deciding to yeah. jump, drop out. And uh, we're, we're going to be examining uh, kind of where the European Union came from. So we're going to, we're going to dive back. Mm-hmm. We're going to dive back. Um, and uh, to do that, we've, we've upped our production budget, <laughs> Siobhan. I'm so excited. Um, we spent all the money. All the money. All, all the money. All the money. Uh, and uh, we are now going to go back in time. That, we, was, that was magical. Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, so, um, look, uh, we're not, we're not going to jump back to a specific time at this point. What we are going to jump back to is the idea that Europe as a thing has constantly been kind of in conflict with each other yep. for a long, 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 yep. long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that I often talk about uh, when we talk about ancient history in class is uh, that, you know, nations, they're a pretty recent invention too, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and so, the, you know, there used to be a lot of kind of just city-states around the place, mm-hmm. um, obviously like places like Rome, which grew to be a massive empire, you know, just from the one city. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, there, um, the idea of, of countries coming together, that's a, that's a fairly recent invention. And I think it's something too that is um, unusual for Australians who haven't really thought about it before because we are one country and we are an island, so we've ne- our borders don't change mm. uh, depending on, you know, conflicts or treaties or whatever, the way that it has constantly in Europe. Yeah. So, like, our, our identity as a country has always been Australian, like, yep. you know, obviously recent past but sure. um yeah so it's it's an unusual idea for australians that you could just walk across a river and you're in a different country and yeah. like what what ramifications does that have for those people in those areas for sure yeah, yeah. and um so yeah i think um shout out to all our european listeners i know oh, we have guys. some out there oh it's so exciting it is pretty exciting <laughs> um and so you know europe has has kind of had this tradition of you know, uh, changing borders, mm-hmm. conflicts about changing borders, mm-hmm. um, different uh, people rising up as emperors or uh, kings or, you know, th- and those types of things and, and taking over different places. And um, and eventually we, we kind of get to, I guess, what we would call the modern Modern age. age. Yep. Um, 1700s. Yeah, around there. When we start to get proper nation states and we mm-hmm. have France having their revolution, <laughs> of course, and, um, yes. uh, you know, creating their, their nation state. And then uh, eventually we get, um, I guess, England deciding that they're, they're their own country as well. Yes. And, um, and they're going to be the best. Yes, they are going to be yeah. the best. Uh, and in fact, we have a lot of countries rising that time. We have mm. Germany rising up in that time, yep. coming together. Um, Unification in 1881. Yeah. Fact check me. Fact check me. 18. 
Oh, oh. I'm thinking 1861. Unification, Unification of Germany. Of Germany. Fact check, James. And um, Italy was a similar time. Italy as well. was around that yeah. time too. And of course, they're also going out and, you know. 1871 is my final answer before we get fact checked. Yeah, that just came to me. Unific- Bismarck, Unification of Germany. He can't, he can't find it. His internet, his Wikipedia skills have let him down. You literally have one job. Terrible, <laughs> terrible. I have to get a new producer for next week. He's going all red. <laughs> um, but, but we, um, we have, uh, of course, lots of uh, – talk about this with, with uh, Year 11 all the time, um, that this build-up of, of nationalism and, mm-hmm. and nationhood yeah. builds to World War One. We have a massive war in World War I with, mm-hmm. of course, all the colonies coming to help as well. And then yeah. we finally, uh, we kind of get out of World War I. And, mm-hmm. of course, Germany suffers a lot after World War I with mm-hmm. the Treaty of Versailles. And, yeah. and, um, but, of course, all the allies want to keep their colonies and they want to keep expanding yeah. empires and all yeah. this kind of stuff, which, of course, leads to, uh, and I often say this too, is that World War II was a true sequel. Yeah. Um, it's it, almost the same conflict. <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, essentially. And, um, you know, we have World War II. Um, and, of course, out of World War One and World War Two, we get this idea that maybe we need to avoid these kinds of large-scale yeah, conflicts. this is pretty destructive and bad for mankind. So, it, yeah. yeah. And so out of World War One, we get the League of Nations, which kind of doesn't really work yes. very well. The toothless tiger. Yeah. Um, mostly because the United States doesn't get involved. Yeah. Um, but other reasons too. Mm. Pretty, pretty apathetic countries yep. involved in it. Yeah. Um, An inability to um, follow through with any sort of um, sanctions and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And so um, well, do we have a date, James? 1871. Your final answer was correct. Boom. Nice. <laughs> we only, we've only taught it like I numerous <laughs> times. Yeah. Probably should know our dates. I'm sad. Yeah, I'm a bit disappointed I had to be fact-checked there. That, that is a bit That's okay. I was correct. Uh, and so, yeah, so after like World War II happens and we're like, oh, we can't let this keep happening. That's mm. not good. Yep. Um, what are we going to do? Well, we might form some sort of international alliances and yep. international organisations that are going to help. And, of course, we get the UN after World War II. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things that happens is that a lot of European nations decide that maybe we need to start working together a bit more. Yep. I think also one of the things they recognise is um, the impact that economic instability had in causing conflict in World War II. Mm. Um, Like the Great Depression was obviously, um, it hit Germany really hard and and was one of the main reasons that Hitler was able to come to power. So Mm -hmm. if these countries are able to cooperate economically, um, it would ensure sort of stability for everybody. Yeah, for sure. Um, And that was one of the main um, things they wanted to do with the beginning of the EU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yep. And so uh, the, the EU kind of uh, comes out of this, uh, I guess, want to build um, some economic capacity mm. in, in some of the smaller countries at first. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, they build a, a European economic community. Yes. And um, you can see that actually with the, the six original countries. Um, that this could be you – know, can you name the six? Do you know the six? Oh, you're testing It could be a fun guessing game. Let's go. Um, Ready? I've got them here. So, James, okay. jump in. Okay. What do you okay, reckon? Okay, okay, Six. I'm th- – oh, okay. Is it – France? Yes. Uh, I think Belgium? Yep. Uh, Netherlands? Yep. Halfway there. <sighs> One surprising. Um, I'm going to say West Germany? Yep. Uh, Italy? Yes. 
The last one's a teeny tiny little place. Oh, Luxembourg? Yes. Hey. Well done. Hot streak. Hey. Not bad. Good job. <laughs> and did you know the word that's used to refer to um, Belgium, Netherlands and Luxembourg? Ooh. The Benelux countries. Hey. Isn't that, yeah. Yeah. Be- wow. Benelux. Benelux. Because they refer to them collectively because um, like culturally they are all very similar and they've yeah, always sure. kind of cooperated with each other because of their minute size in Europe. Yeah. But they're the Benelux country. Huh. Isn't that fun? There you go. I've started fun facts early. Sorry, guys. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we, do, we do like some fun facts. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and so we're, we're kind of getting into – so we're, we're kind of moving to the, about the early 50s yeah. <laughs> um, when we start to get these these six countries coming together. Yes, uh, and and looking at what they can do to support each other, mm. um, predominantly in economic ways, yes, um, and sort of trade and customs and that yeah. kind of thing too. So yeah, like the first date I have is 1950, which is the European Coal and Steel Community, which is those six nations mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. successfully identified. Thank you, thank you. I didn't say guest because that would be insulting your intelligence. Sure, sure. <laughs> and so uh, yeah, so that that econ- uh, the coal and steel community. Yep. Um, they, they managed to, um, yeah, really get funds back into Europe. Mm. Um, well, that's what they needed. They needed an injection of money yeah. um, after the devastation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Mm. And so then uh, this this idea starts to build that, well, if, if, the, if you know, this type of thing can work, yep. then maybe we can do it on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. And so in 1957. Yes, we've got the, the Treaty of Rome. The Treaty of Rome. The Treaty of Rome, which... Uh, brings together the same countries that we named before mm-hmm. um, and they created the European Economic Community mm-hmm. um, and established a customs union. Um, this is a really exciting history, How exciting isn't it? is this? This is, no, <laughs> you know, you know like- what though? <laughs> I think what this, what really interests me about this mm. is that there's these, like, I mean, France and Germany just have this horrid history of, what do you mean? Uh, like, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you you took uh, Alsace Lorraine. I want Alsace Lorraine. Yeah. Can I have Alsace Lorraine back? Can we, well, let's just like we'll fight over it again. You. I'm going to take it. Right, uh, like just all the time. Yeah, like it's yeah. it's just and all yet, the time. Yeah, and yet only you know we're, we're talking 15 years after. Mm. Really, end, you know, yeah. bitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> war. Um, they're, they're, they're cooperating. Cooperating. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty. Like, I think that's it's, really it impressive. It is cool. Yeah. Um, and and actually, hundreds of years mm. prior to this of fighting. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, that they can actually manage to find political solutions. Yeah. I yeah. think is really really interesting. It is. It was. Yeah. It would have been difficult to convince people to do it, but um. Yeah. Innovative. Yeah. Um, and so that treaty, the Treaty of Rome, that's that's in effect from 1957 till 1992 and other countries sign on to that treaty as yeah. well as they begin to join what mm. will end up being known as the European. We're not, we're not known not as the European Union yet. yet. Yeah. No. Yeah. When does that happen? Uh, so we've got that in November 1993. November 1993, which is part of what is known as the Maastricht Treaty. Yeah. Oh, you could say Maastricht. Mm. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not the resident linguist on the program. <laughs> just more like guttural sounds there. It's sure. Fun. It's just fun. Ma- Maastricht. Maastricht. <laughs> Maastricht. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm done butchering cool. other languages yeah. there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, so that treaty uh, really brought together uh, quite a few uh, 
interesting things with it. So this is when we formally get recognised as the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, it was the, the treaty that set up what would become the euro. Yeah, which wasn't introduced then. It wasn't yeah, introduced no, then. It, it, it comes up a lot later, but the, yeah. that treaty kind of sets the foundation. Yeah. And that's um, – uh, uh, the euro is an amazing thing too. Mm. Like the fact that you could convince – entire nations to give up their currency. I know. Currency is such a, like a, an important part of national identity when yeah, you really think about it. It really is. Um, yeah. So it is, it, it's really, really interesting that that was successful. Very convenient when one travels though. So thank you, Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess like, and again, this yeah. is why the European yeah. Union exists. Yeah. It was like a, a lot of it was to do with convenience for its citizens, its mm. um, and so the euro is part of that. Uh, it also, I guess, w- was designed to help um, you know the, the massive nations of Europe mm. be on a level playing field with the smaller nations of Europe and give kind of a bit of an equality to that, yeah. uh, and make the market a bit more equitable. I'm no economist, mm. but uh, yeah, they wanted to establish the four freedoms, is what I found in my research. Sure, so sure. Yeah, the, the movement of goods, mm-hmm. services, mm-hmm. people, and money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, which they did. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Uh, and so we get the euro being introduced in 1999. Ooh, I have 2002, but no biggie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was 1999. I think the, the earliest adopters were in 1999. Right. What do we got, James? 1st of January, 1999. Oh, do we have a sound bite for that? No, we don't. No? Okay. Next time. Oh, 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 <laughs> for me being wrong? Oh, for you being wrong. Yeah, hang on, yeah. hang on. And I concede I was wrong about the thing. Good. However. No, no, however, just be wrong. Just stand there and you're wrong. Listen, be wrong. Get used to it. <laughs> Thanks, President Bartlett. Yeah, I will, Jed. Thank you. Um, <laughs> hang on. What have we got? Principal, oh. principal euro coins and banknotes. Uh, came into circulation as of the 1st of January, 2002. Oh, so we're both kind of right? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, and so it replaces, in 2002, it replaces the currencies of 12 separate countries. Yep. Um, and since then, it's grown to over 19 countries in the yep. Eurozone uh, and becomes the second largest reserve currency in mm. the world. Um, one thing that I didn't really look into, but I kind of have questions about is sure. um, like in the established, like the in-between years where like you've got the fifties, then 1993, when it all starts, um, we have the cold war mm, going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like how many of those like former Soviet countries have joined? Do you know? And like, <sighs> like, is that anything that you sort of looked at? I didn't really look at that. No. I just, um, yeah. Let me see. Can we get the member nations up here? Um so looks like we've got sort of uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, mm. um, obviously Poland. Mm. Um, so they would have all joined in like the nineties or Slovakia, like. Hungary, those types of places. So yeah. they, they've they've definitely so quite a few quite a few have yeah. have joined. Yeah. Um, there's quite a few. It looks like take that communism from the map that I'm looking at here. Quite a few Balkan nations that aren't part of the European Union. Obviously right. Switzerland. Is remaining is, neutral yes. because <laughs> you we know. will not take a stance. Um, yeah. And um, and obviously Turkey, who want to join, yeah, this is interesting, um, but have not been allowed to join. Um, they, so they, okay. they they have some some sort of agreements. So, yeah, 
Um, um, it could be the fact that uh, in order to successfully apply for the European Union, the member sh- it's open to any country with a democratic government, a good human rights record, and sound economic policies. Policies, sorry. Yeah, which so, um, probably uh, Turkey yeah. not hitting yeah, too might, many of them might rule Turkey out <laughs> at the minute. Yeah, at the minute. Yeah. Let's say at the minute yeah. because you we know, believe <laughs> you can you, do it, Turkey. <laughs> yeah, you can do it, Turkey. Yeah, yeah. get on that. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So oh, and they had to. Bo- uh, you have to have abolished the death penalty. Oh, I'm, I'm using that's all my, interesting. I'm using all my fun facts um, ahead of time, but that's okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So in order to be admitted, you have to have abolished the death penalty. Yeah. Right. Um, Although, like France, I'm pretty sure France didn't abolish the death penalty until 1970s. I wonder if that's a later. Maybe yeah, they, they the made tree. that as a rule later when they were trying to like limit, clean it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, can you fact check me? Um, <laughs> but um, because it was by guillotine. Okay, that, well, it was by guillotine. I remember, like, that's just you know my still by guillotine in, in the seventies. Yep. Whoa. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is crazy. a little bit mind blowing. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure because I was shocked by it. Um, but that's beside the point. Know, wow. Robespierre lives on. I know. Um, uh, wow. Um, can you, can you that, imagine being- I know. Before we keep going, I just want to make sure that I'm right. James, come on. Capital punishment in Europe. What have we got? Uh, uh, so the, uh, the latter, which is the moratorium. Uh, I can't see what I'm looking at there, James. So, no. Anyway, come back to that's us. Okay. That's come okay. That's okay. Um, yeah. So, okay. Well, that's, yeah. no, that's interesting. Yeah. That yeah. is. Um, it's very progressive. Um, it is. Mm. It is. Um, so, yeah, so we had the the Treaty of Maastricht <laughs> and then we, we end up with the Treaty of Lisbon in yeah. 2007, mm-hmm. which is rather recent, but uh, that, that treaty was really a consolidation treaty, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, by um, setting up a lot of um, the current systems yeah. and, and governing bodies around mm. the European Parliament yeah. and the President and things that are, are sort of um, – I guess talked about now yeah. uh, as reasons for maybe why people Britain don't want to be in it anymore. Yeah. 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 Um, so I guess the European union is really a, what they call a supranational power, yeah. um, which I was like, I'm sorry, what? Um, yeah. And so I had to look it up. Um, <laughs> it's very complicated. It is very complicated yeah. because yeah. they're not a country. No. Um, they're just a series of countries that have joined together with things that make it look like a country. Mm, like a flag and a national anthem. And a national anthem. Yeah. Um, yeah. James, now me and Siobhan know what the national anthem of the European Union is. Could you, without fact-checking, could you take a guess what you think the national anthem, it's it's actually a song, already, already established song. Yeah. Do you want to take a guess what the anthem of the European Union is. What do you what do you no reckon? Idea. You got no idea? No idea. No idea. Well, let me let me play a little bit for you. Hopefully. <laughs> Get the karaoke version like we did with <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
Um, so I hope it didn't blow your ears off there yeah, because that, uh, that was that was, <laughs> <laughs> was pretty yum loud. Sorry about it's that. So happy, isn't um, it? Happy, cheerful. It is. It is happy. Yeah. Um, so obviously, Ode to Joy, which mm. is part of the final movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yep. Um, so they chose a, a German song there. That's interesting. Ooh. <laughs> it's actually interesting <laughs> that they did choose an existing song and didn't choose to like write something new with like collaboration from various member states. But, um, you know, I don't think anyone is offended by Ode to Joy. So. Sure, sure. Um, and, I, well, I'm, okay, so I, I have been looking at Ode to Joy to try and, like, <laughs> see maybe why. I did say it was German, but actually there was a French poet okay. who wrote a poem that's called To Joy. Mm-hmm. Um, was it French? Oh, no, he's, he was German. Sorry, he was oh. German. He was German. My bad. Zig. He was German. He wrote a, a poem called To Joy in 1785 as a celebration of the brotherhood of man. Um, and nice. after his death, um, Beethoven put it to music. Okay. Um, and so they decide in 1971, um, the Council of Europe um, proposed adopting uh, the prelude to Ode to Joy mm-hmm. as the anthem. Um, and they kind of saw Beethoven as a natural choice for a European anthem. I guess. I don't know why that is the case. It just, that's what they say here. Um, Like if you think of all of the big composers of that time, like Beethoven is probably one of the most well-known and celebrated and he's not controversial or, (laughs) you know, he, yeah. 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 And look, Ode to Joy, it's a, it is, it's a celebration piece. It's it's very uplifting. Yeah. I can see why you would choose it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sure. Mm. Uh, and They've also got a motto. Do you know the motto? I did know the motto. It's Latin and I can't remember what it is. Oh, I just wrote the English version. <laughs> it's um, United in di- Diversity. United in Diversity. That's yeah. right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's because one of the languages yeah. of the European Union is yeah. Latin. Really? Yep. That seems silly. Yep. Why would they do that? I don't know why they would do that. <laughs> it's like two people out there who speak it like come on i think there's probably more than that who speak it even though it is a dead language but uh, <laughs> geeks that are bigger geeks than you and me sure <laughs> definitely um but um yeah so okay. uh yeah so the the one of the there's like 20 something official languages right they there is quite a few official languages uh, i was looking into this too mm-hmm. uh so the most spoken language in the european union is english, english. at 51 percent that's crazy. Yeah. Like given the fact that Britain, like, I mean, a lot of those other countries would have English as this, like another, another official language mm, perhaps, mm. but Britain is like a tiny little country who didn't join until the seventies and has now exited. Yeah. And English is the most, is the most spoken language. Yeah. Which I think. How good is imperialism? Well, I think, I wonder, <laughs> I, I assume it's, it's something to do with the education systems yes, in Europe. Yes. And all. Everyone speaks all, English. Everyone just kind of learning yeah. English as a second yeah. language yeah. Um, or even third, fourth, fifth, mm. because I know a lot of Europeans speak many, many, many yes, I know. languages. They put um, us to shame. So they do put us to mm. shame. That is definitely is the, the second case. one French? Uh, I believe it was. Yeah. I don't have the statistics right on me at the minute. But I think I'm pretty I read sure, that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. And yeah. I, but I'm pretty sure it's a massive leap. To to like a, I think it was like 50 to 11% or something. something like yeah. that. It is yeah. a massive drop off. Yeah. Um, and then obviously everyone kind of speaks their own yes. native tongue. Yes. Um, well, here you go. We don't need my own fun fact segment this at this time because I'm just interspersing them throughout the episode. Sure. But fun fact, uh, the European Parliament is the biggest, where am I up to? Yep, the biggest employer of translators in the world. Oh, wow. I think they have something like 300 permanent 
translators on mm. staff mm. and then like 400 sort of freelancers, yeah. like if there's an event or something on. Yep. Yeah. So because, yeah, because the European Parliament Bigger meet. than the UN, which yeah, I Yeah, and they meet surprising. on a really regular basis yeah. and they decide lots of things based on like regulations for mm. companies in Europe yeah. um, so that it is the same yeah. standard yeah. across the board. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, like, um, so I, I can see how, and, you know, everyone in Europe elects a representative. Mm. Like it's a standard electoral election. Like there is, yes. a, you know, electorates who elect yeah. it's someone to go. Um, like logistically, think just thinking it's about a nightmare, the logistics isn't it? of it, it's just crazy. Because here's another one. Mm. Uh, yeah, the European Parliament is the largest and only directly elected international body in the world with more than 700 members representing over 500 million citizens from the 28 members. Mem- oh, it's 27 now, I think. 27 mm. member states. Mm. <laughs> um, no other international body in the world can beat the size of the European Parliament. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm. And so I can see why they would need so many translators because yes. I'm assuming they're all just kind of speaking in their own tongue mm. a lot of the time too. Yeah. Um, and especially if, you know, anyone could get elected too mm. because, of course, prior to Brexit, England voted in Nigel Farage of the UKIP party, mm-hmm. um, United Kingdom Independence Party, um, <laughs> which is so ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that, you know, like I mean, obviously he stood on a platform of we're going to get out of the European Union, but in the same time he was voting on things yeah. in the European Union. Oh, it would have been so annoying to be another country having to work with him and just being like, you, <laughs> what are you doing here? Wouldn't like- <laughs> it? That, that does sound oh. extremely mm. annoying. Mm. Um and so, look, we're not we're not going to get deep into Brexit. No, um, um, we might say Brexit for another day. Yes, because I think it is a big topic it of its own, yeah. and it is interesting. Yeah. Um. But the like Europe as a thing is just still massive. Yeah. Um. And they, you know, when when I think about international events and things that are going on in the world and we're talking about things like uh, Syria mm. in the last couple of years and the refugee crisis that was yeah. happening in Europe and, um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about is the European Union still functional? Viable. Is it still viable? Mm. Can yeah. they still keep, you know, because Germany was stumping up a lot of money for a lot of failing countries and economies too and, like, yeah. since 2008 with the economic crisis, so, like, a lot of countries were in a lot of economic trouble and so yeah. Germany's just pumping money in. Yeah. Um, um, when I was looking at sort of different historians um, and economists' sort of perspective on the European Union, I found there tended to be two camps mm-hmm. and there was there was one that's saying that the European Union has been a tremendous success um, just due to the fact that there have been no conflicts that have been caused by one of the mm-hmm. member states since World War II. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that was, it was peace and prosperity. That was the goal. And if that's what you're looking at, then, then they've been successful. The other camp are the people who say that it is a bureaucratic nightmare, sure. um, that it's not functional, um, that the bureaucracy involved in the European Union means that it is a non-sustainable entity and it will grind to a halt. Some saying almost imminently, but others saying, you know, in, in a fair Mm, you know, in, mm, sure. in the next few I years. I suppose, yeah, m- once we see the ramifications minus Britain, Britain yeah. that could be interesting. Yeah. I, I, I wonder because um, it, it just it surprised me as because we were talking about it before, the supranational nationality mm. of the thing. Mm. Um, could you imagine having another government above the federal government in Australia? 
Because no. that is essentially what's yeah. happening yeah. in these places. Yeah. Um, I cannot fathom, like, we vote in three elections already mm. in our state, yeah. right, which yeah. is the same in most states of Australia, yeah. right? Yeah. You vote for your councils, you vote for your state, state and federal. And, federal yeah. and then there would be someone else yeah. above that. Yeah. That is also making decisions mm. about things that would happen in your country. It, it's yeah. a, it's quite it's, a... It would be difficult if, like, the, the person who is in charge is not someone from your country, which obviously would happen all the time in the European Union mm, and then mm. sort of being dictated to by that person yeah. and, and trying to find ways uh, for all of the country's interests to be met. Like, compromises would have to be made and, like, that would be difficult to swallow sometimes if you found yourself on the losing side of one of those yeah. compromises. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, so it's it's just a really interesting idea. It is. Yeah. It is. And so, look, we didn't quite get to Tony Abbott as an endpoint here. <sighs> so I'm thinking this could be our first two-parter. Yeah. And yeah. when we come back yeah. next time. We can. Uh, we can delve into the. The Brexit. The Brexit. Thing. Yeah. Um, I do. Ha- I just have a, I have a little bit here just trying to understand like why they voted, why Brexit, the Brexit argument one, Mm. Um, and there's just a little, it's from Forbes, it's vital to understand that Brexit was a vote against the British elite. Voters thought politicians, business leaders and intellectuals had lost their right to control the system. Voters thought the elite had contempt for their values, for their nationalism and for their interests. So to me that sounds like it's more of a problem of Britain within Britain and and the EU was just one way to stick it to the elites. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. Uh, yeah. Potentially. That's obviously just one perspective, but yeah. 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 Yep. Well, if we, if we're wrapping up, I have a final fun fact. Um, I can't <laughs> wait to hear it. <laughs> okay. So um, this is from the New York times. It's an article from um, 2009 and this is what caught my attention. The EU's butter mountain is back. And I read that and I was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to see the pictures. And I clicked on it and this was the opening. Two years after it was supposed to have melted away for good, Europe's butter mountain is back. Faced with a drastic drop in the price of dairy goods, the European Union is to buy 30,000 tonnes of unsold butter at taxpayers' expense, reviving one of the abiding symbols of Europe's generous farm subsidy system. So you can imagine my disappointment mm. when I found out that that's just, that's just butter in cold storage somewhere. It wasn't really a mountain <laughs> made of butter. No. That is disappointing. They just bought it to like, you know. I was hoping sure for they- like some sort of Matterhorn shapes. That's what I, I thought it might have been some cool like – Art installation or something, but no, no. The EU just bought just stockpiles of butter. Make sure that the dairy farmers would survive. I mean, you know, like you need a good chunk of butter on your on your (laughs) on your baguette. You do, wee wee. (laughs) Wow. And I think, well, I think that does it. It does does kind of sum up what the European yeah. Union does. It's protecting its nation states. Yeah. All matters um, large and small. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so I guess that's, that's how, how it, it came, came to this. this. <laughs> how did it come to this is written by Daniel Matters and Siobhan Doherty. Our producer is James Tuckwell, edited by Daniel Matters, original music by Lachlan McWhorter. Hey guys, we're we're back because we found we actually found out 
when the last execution in France was. Right. So Sh- Siobhan is going to tell us all about it. Here you go, guys. So um, the last person uh, to be executed in France uh, was a convicted murderer, became the last person to meet his end by the National Razor after he was executed by guillotine in 1977. 1977? I know. It's only 10 years before I was born. chopped off. Yep. That's ridiculous. Yep. How can you do that to a person? Oh, France. Like, even if he did, like, something really horrid. Like, a a guillotine. What? (laughs) (sighs) Hope you're as outraged as we are. (laughs) Bye. Bye.